Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Bible Geek Time with Robert M. Price, your host. Gonna be a shorter one tonight, I think, unless I get carried away. Haven't felt too well all day. Feel better now, though, so I'm gonna try to uh, pack some energy into this uh, episode of the Bible Geek, and we'll see how much we cover. Uh, here's one. Uh, D- I'm afraid I don't have the name for this. It was part of a question that I answered the rest of yesterday and forgot about this. Uh, so you know who you are. Uh, do you think the Shroud of Turin is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Well, you know, uh, one might expect me to answer this deductively. Uh, if I'm a mythicist, I don't believe that uh, there was even a burial of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to answer it that way. Uh, there's uh, that that begs the question, right? In the technical sense, um, I arrived at mythicism inductively, and I want to. Uh, so I examined various questions and pieces of evidence in their own right. So let me do that here again. Uh, I think that uh, it is uh, adequately demonstrated that the uh, Shroud of Turin is a 14th century uh, fraud, and uh, there are a couple of big reasons for this. Uh, one is that the guy who did it uh, confessed to it at the time. Right now, of course, he could have been just seeking the limelight and confessing to something he didn't do, but uh, it's good enough for me. But even if he hadn't, uh, the uh, carbon-14 testing was definitive. It showed that, yeah, what do you know? It came from not only the Middle Ages, but the 14th century, independently corroborating the date uh, given by the uh, the forger. Uh, and I know that uh, diehard shroud maniacs say, oh, no, those stupid scientists just took bits and pieces from the obviously much later cloth patches used to repair the shroud after it got uh, some minor burns in a fire in the, where it was kept at, at some point. And uh, so the rest of the cloth, which they skipped, uh, is, uh, is no doubt uh, first century. These guys knew their stuff. You, you cannot miss the patches. There, it's, uh, it's just clumsily stuck on. There's no way you could make that mistake. And they made sure they didn't. Uh, so it's just disinformation. It's just the, another example of what Schweitzer called the crooked and fragile thinking of Christian apologetics. Not that all Christians would defend this thing, but it's more the same kind of nonsense in any event. So, uh, yeah, I, I think no, no way. So, so much for that one. I, uh, let's see, have a longer one here. Uh, this is from Charles Power. He says, perhaps I should clarify that my first serious Bible studies were inspired back when I was in Catholic high school by Bernard Shaw's preface to Androcles and the Lion. As you may know, the prefaces to Shaw's plays are sometimes massive, longer than the plays themselves. This preface exposed me to the novel idea that each evangelist had his own particular agenda. 
Shaw had his ideas, but was not primarily a biblical scholar. I wonder if you could summarize your understanding of the different agendas of the synoptics. John's high Christology is a pretty obvious difference. Presumably, the agendas of Matthew and Luke would be reflected not only by the completely different stories, the, the narratives, but perhaps more tellingly in the ways they elaborated on material found in common sources, Mark and Q. Are there consistent tendencies to be found? Who you bet there are. That's what redaction criticism is all about. With Mark, I would say that the uh, the main point uh, the, the, that the main point of view, shall we say, is the messianic secret um, model, the attempt to harmonize two different early Christologies, one which said that Jesus. Um, became uh, the, the Christ at his resurrection, uh, the other that uh, said he uh, ha had already become the Christ uh, at his baptism. This meant that uh, if you adhered to the latter, you're saying that uh, the deeds of Jesus during his public ministry were already messianic. Uh, they were fulfilling prophecy, and he was doing the job of the Messiah. But if you held to the former, that is, that Jesus became the Son of God, the Messiah, as of the resurrection, well, then you're uh, saying that he wasn't the Messiah yet uh, during his public ministry. But he he did what he had to do to merit that honor and was given it at the resurrection slash ascension, which meant his first messianic coming was yet in the future, though probably not very far in the future. That explains a whole lot of the ways uh, the story is told, the um, injunctions to secrecy, uh, where Jesus tells people he is healed to keep it under their hat uh, and uh, don't tell anybody. And sometimes you can tell that the story originally cannot have read that way because it would be impossible to obey Jesus, like in the case of uh, raising from the dead the daughter of Jairus, um, where he, he raises her up and says, don't tell anybody about this. How's that possible? Uh, Jesus has to elbow his way through a crowd of weeping and wailing mourners circling the house. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he has said he's going to wake up the girl. Uh, they're not supposed to tell that it worked. They're supposed to pretend Jesus failed and snuck out the back way. They're going to keep the kid in the house the rest of her life. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. So you can tell that the don't tell anybody is just a, a clumsy editorial edition. And he wouldn't, won't let the demons speak at the transfiguration. He says, don't tell anybody about this until the resurrection, etc. It, it makes an awful lot of sense of it. And uh, there is also uh, the uh, agenda of uh, faithfulness to Christ and your confession of him during um, times of persecution. And that is a biggie. So, um, uh, the, And there are other... Uh, theories as to what Mark is really trying to get across, but I still go with William Vreda saying the messianic secret seems to be the real thrust of the thing. With Matthew, you've got uh, a kind of, you have a, a Jewish scribe who has become a, a Jesus believer, and um, he is one of the leaders of a community of Jewish Christians, probably in Antioch, of Syria, and uh, he is in competition with what we now call formative Judaism, the Judaism of the Yavna rabbis, and uh, there's a fixation, a preoccupation with even fairly minor elements of the Torah. All Christians have to keep them, whether Jewish Christians or Gentile converts, because the Great Commission stipulates that all the nations should be baptized and taught to keep uh, everything Jesus has commanded. And on the other end of the gospel, Jesus has said in chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, that you must keep even the least of the commandments of the Torah. Uh, and so he's promoting a kind of Jewish 
uh, Torah Christianity uh, exactly the opposite opinion than we find in the epistle to the Galatians. And um, so there's this, Jesus is prominently depicted as a new Moses whose death has the primary function in Matthew of, uh, of um, being the blood to inaugurate a new covenant, just as Moses sprinkled uh, sacrificial blood on the, on the vessels and on the people and all of that and said, behold, the blood of the covenant. Uh, Luke is um, written for a Hellenistic audience. He eliminates uh, Hebrew and Aramaic terms like Hosanna and Ephatha and stuff like that from the, the gospel material. Uh, and um, he, uh, he, he uh, changes little things like the roof where these, the friends of the paralytic uh, disassemble the roof and lower their friends down by ropes on a stretcher in front of Jesus. Well, in Mark, it said that uh, they removed the thatch from the roof, which is what you would find in Palestine. But Luke has them remove the tiles from the roof because that's what his Hellenistic readers were more familiar with. Uh, Luke is uh, also big on the Torah as he understands it, which is not... Uh, as accurately uh, as as Matthew does, and uh, has uh, this major well, well, like Matthew has the teaching of Jesus organized into five big blocks, self-contained, in order to have Jesus giving a, a new Pentateuch, so to speak, uh, though he doesn't abolish the old one. And uh, Luke doesn't do that, but he does in his central section or travel narrative. Uh, very ingeniously craft a Christian Deuteronomy. Uh, and uh, C.F. Evans talked about this, the central section of St. Luke's Gospel, and I talk about it in a couple of my books, especially um, uh, the uh, the Christ myth theory and its problems. Um, he is much concerned with uh, dampening down apocalyptic enthusiasm. History has gone on. The early uh, expectation of the kingdom of God has fallen through. And so, like the rabbis did when the same thing happened with them, uh, Luke tries to dampen that. And in various places, by uh, changing the material and rewriting it and adding new sayings, he actually has the question come up, Master, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Or uh, because they were headed for Jerusalem, the people thought the kingdom of God was to dawn immediately, Jesus said so-and-so. Or um, uh, how will we know the kingdom of God's coming? Uh, well, you, you won't know by a series of signs the kingdom of God is within you. And uh, that's, uh, that's a major theme for Luke. Luke also seems to not care for the idea of a blood atonement in Luke and in Acts uh, with his redaction of earlier material. You can tell that though he believes Jesus is the Savior and he had to die in order to fulfill the the prophetic job description, that's mainly the point of the death. If he had not died, he couldn't have been the true Messiah. But he doesn't exactly say the death is what saves. Uh, was it not prophesy that the Messiah should suffer and only then enter into his glory, uh, you have to be baptized in his name and receive the Spirit. Uh, the uh, Luke seems to systematically avoid the idea of, of saving bloodshed and so on. Uh, so uh, Luke is also especially interested in the poor and has material about them that uh, you don't find in other Gospels. Uh, I would recommend um, a book by Joachim Rode, R-O-H-D-E, I think I've got that right, uh, called uh, The... Um, oh boy, what is it? The, the Theology of the Evangelists... Um, Oh boy, I'm blanking on. I'm trying to find the book on the shelf, uh, scanning them. Um, hmm. Yeah. Oh, let's see. 
I can't quite tell, but it's Joachim Rode. Uh, but the greatest example of redaction criticism must surely be Hans Konzelman, C-O-N-Z-E-L-M-A-N-N, Hans Konzelman, The Theology of St. Luke. That really tells you um, what redaction criticism is. There are other great works of it, but that's that's really the classic on that. So yeah, they do have patterns of uh, editorial change, and this is the kind of thing that makes it impossible for me to go along with the people that claim that the synoptic gospels are simply different transcriptions of various oral performances of the Gospels that uh, the, uh, the the reciter would change things here and there. Uh, and that counts for the large degree of similarity, but the numerous differences. I, I'm, I cannot buy that because it's obvious to me the closer you look at it, and Consulman has probably looked at it more closely than anybody else ever has, the more evident it is you're dealing with a religious text, uh, a written text. Um, of course, that these guys didn't think, the scribes or whatever you want to call them, who wrote the, the Gospels, like the people that wrote the Old Testament books, weren't writing for a popular audience. There couldn't be a popular audience. You couldn't just go into a store and buy a copy of the scriptures. Uh, it was uh, written for fellow scribes and scholars and rabbis and so forth. And these are the guys that would have noticed that stuff just like today. So, okay. um, Ken Bradley in Winchester, Kentucky, says... Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Could this be an anachronistic interpolation done by a scribe after the fall of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD? My thought is that Paul chose a different word at the time of his writing, uh, and a later scribe found it more comforting to explain that the temple was still alive in all of us. Well, Ken, I almost agree with you, but I think it's, uh, I think um, I would go a, one notch over on that. It seems to me that that kind of talk does come from the original writer, whoever it was, right? Uh, and uh, I think, of course, the Pauline epistles are not by the historical Paul, but are uh, all like patchwork quilts of fragments by various later Paulinists. And uh, I think that this dates from after the destruction of the temple, but that is the point, to say, hey, look, uh, it's not that bad. Uh, we, we're the temple now. It kind of presupposes that the temple is gone and you're trying to make the most of it. Um, as I did the other day, I would recommend John C. O'Neill's The Theology of Acts in its Historical Setting. Oh, by the way, that the title um, uh, by Joachim Rhoda is Rediscovering the Teaching of the Evangelists. Yeah, it just took me a minute to part the cobwebs there. Uh, this from Dragon Demon Scorpion Terror. Uh, no spaces. Uh, he says, um, you know, possibly a pen name. I, I don't know. But he says, a long-term close friend of mine is training for the Anglican priesthood. He's affiliated with the Anglican Church in North America. He has described at some length to me the nature of some of the conflict between this particular branch of the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church. He takes largely conservative views on subjects such as abortion, gay marriage, and transgender. According to him, the official Church of England has already or is about to remove their endorsement of the American Episcopal Church. I, I thought that had happened some years ago, but I, I don't really know. And bestow it upon the Anglican Church in North America as the official U.S. branch of the Anglican Church, largely due to the Episcopal Church's recent stance on pro-choice and gay marriage. Um, uh, as the Episcopal Church has not gone through the proper ecclesiastical channels of government to alter their theology in these regards. 
So the, the issue was not necessarily the content, but the procedure. Right? If you went through the channels, you might just get voted down. And uh, when you'd have to see if you wanted to have a schism. And in fact, that's what most people consider the Anglican Church in North America to be a schismatic group. I guess that's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, let's see, I am also colleagues as a psychotherapist with a former Episcopal priest who still serves as a deacon in said denomination and also considers himself a Buddhist who takes quite a different view on the matter and sees the Episcopal Church as headed in a more progressive, humanist, and enlightened direction. To my knowledge, you've been an active member and leader in the Episcopal Church for quite some time. Well, I haven't been active in a few years now. I was never a leader. I taught some classes occasionally. Uh, I was on a committee on confirmation for the diocese once, but that really came to nothing. Um, let's see. I, uh, would you be able to speak to some of these issues? What is your opinion on the church politics between the Anglicans and the Episcopalians? Do you see one's, one's stance as more grounded in Scripture than the other on these issues? Um, I personally believe such a division is petty and, quite frankly, behind the times and culturally inappropriate on the part of the ACNA, but then I'm a hell-bound sinner after all. Well, the uh, procedural issue, I think, is important, and this was a problem with ordaining women to the priesthood and to the, to the episcopate. Um, in that they didn't have the requisite number of bishops. And a, a defining thing in the Episcopal Church is the apostolic succession of bishops. Now, I think that's a kind of a fiction, but it is a very old one, and that is the rule. And so if you're not following the rule, you're, you're kind of... Uh, separating yourself from it. It's similar to the sanctuary cities mess in the United States where these people are simply disregarding federal law, which is illegal to do by definition. Uh, your basic, I mean, the South knew that that meant seceding from the Union. And of course, California is consistently trying to do just that to their credit. I mean, they're, they at least understand the, the problem there. Um, so the procedural thing is is a real issue. I um, tend to take more conservative, uh, a more conservative stance on the uh, the abortion issue, and I personally think it is a tragedy and a shame for a church denomination to, in effect, be pro-abortion. I think that is a very serious moral confusion. Uh, gay marriage is, is not clear to me. I, I don't have any problem with it, but I can understand why some people do, because again, it's like, by definition, what do we mean by marriage? That's, that's a toughie. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not even getting involved with that. What difference does it make what I think? I mean, personally, you know, it's fine by me. If I were approached by a gay couple to get married, I, I guess I would marry them. I don't have any problem. Uh, but, uh, I, I'm sympathetic to to um, traditionalists who say, wait, wait a minute, that's not what we mean by marriage. I don't know how you win that argument, actually, uh, so I'm not in it. Um, the transgender thing, uh, that that is even more of a problem because there you're, you're really uh, sort of dissolving cultural categories in a way. And I can see that the, I think it's better that the Episcopal Church not take positions on these things. The problem is that they're so, these instances are so rare given the, you know, the statistical issue that to make the exception into the rule is to erode all the rules. So I understand the hesitancy about that. Uh, that uh, it's it's, uh, but uh, again, I, I have no say in it, and uh, it it it's these things are not well, except for abortion. These things are not on my uh, plate. I'm just not that interested because my opinion will make no difference, and it's not clear. Uh, so, 
hard to say. I, I, uh, I think, of course, that you're asking for a schism in any event. Uh, I had no trouble with this in my particular local congregation because uh, we never got into this stuff. Uh, the rectors who were there during my attendance didn't get into these issues or any uh, denominational issues, and that was fine with me. Uh, that stuff is only alienating people, and uh, that's not why I went to church. I mean, look, I, I was pretty much an atheist. Uh, that didn't. Uh, that issue was not uh, important to me. Uh, the it was the uh, the uh, drama of the ritual and all that with its power that I found important, and I didn't want to have political uh, back and forth uh, in in the church. Uh, Charles Power, again, he says, I wonder whether you can explain why Solomon pardons his brother Adonijah for attempting to capture the throne, but then orders him killed when, via Solomon's mother Bathsheba, he asks for King Adonijah, asks for King David's recent virgin bed warmer Abishag. This is right after King David, on the point of death, finds nothing better to do than to tell Solomon to f fulfill a couple of old grudges by killing men David had promised not to kill himself. Uh, getting pardoned by this family seems to be a warning to get the hell out of town and hide. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, and and they, these guys were not the only ones on David's hit list. Well, Sal, I told him I wouldn't kill him, but that doesn't mean you can't do it for me. It's kind of like the the godfather. Well, why was there a problem with, uh, with Adonijah and th that would be provoked by his requesting that he take to wife uh, the young woman Abishag, we were told that, this is so weird, that uh, as he was very, very old, David was cold all the time, and he was confined to bed toward the end, <laughs> and so he wanted the virgin Abishag to be his heating pad, uh, and it's pretty clear he he doesn't sleep with her in the sexual sense. Uh, it's pretty weird, uh, but I think the point of this is that since Adonijah was trying to become king when Solomon had been designated by David as his royal heir, but things weren't consolidated yet, uh, that uh, they settled it peacefully between Solomon and Adonijah. And uh, yet when uh, later when Adonijah asked if he could marry Abishag, I think Solomon is saying, wait a minute, this sounds to me like when my other brother Absalom kicked out our dad and made a show of having sex with my dad's harem on the roof of the palace where everybody could see it. Uh, and uh, it, because the idea was, if you uh, take the king's sex partners, uh, you're showing you have his virility, if not more. And this would, if and Solomon is afraid that if Adonijah uh, marries uh, Abishag, this implies he is taking. Not well. They didn't have queens, but uh, that that you're you're trying to replace David on the throne, as if his uh, female passes to you, and so that implies you should be the royal heir. Uh, it was a. I think it was like the iceberg tip of a succession dispute in the making, and Solomon wanted to. Uh, he read it that way and said, "I'm not chancing that." Uh, at least that's the story. Ooh, let's see, let's see. I don't know who this one is from, I'm afraid. Some have lost the name. Greeting to the great beard of Bible knowledge. Uh, or as Woody Allen would say, why do I got to beat a beard? Uh, I was wondering, based on reading the first five books of the Bible, if Yahweh was a mountain or a thunder god. If the progress of religion is the same it is, as it is everywhere, and they were at a point polytheistic, wouldn't Yahweh residing on Mount Sinai and all the thunder and lightning be a leftover of bygone times when he was possibly a Zeus-like god in the ancient Israel pantheon? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. 
Uh, in fact, it's pretty clear that uh, he was a war god and a thunder god, and that uh, he usually dwelt on Mount Seir, if that's how you say it, S-E-I-R, uh, in Edom nearby. But he's also said to be atop uh, Mount uh, Sinai or Mount Horeb. Uh, when Moses sees the burning bush, uh, he uh, doesn't know what to make of it and goes to look at it. Well, it turns out that uh, Mount Horeb was in the territory of his father, Jethro, who was a kind of a sheikh, and and uh, Moses was tending his flock, and the mountain he saw the fire on was part of the the uh, the land of uh, of Jethro. Which is why Jethro was the priest of Midian. He happened to control the Holy Mountain site. And uh, so he was up there, but even in the description of the giving of the law at Sinai, you've got all the phenomena of the thunder and lightning shaking the ground and all of that. So he's at the crest of the mountain, or descends upon the mountain, it says, which kind of implies he's primarily a sky god, and it speaks of him as being a mighty man of war. Uh, in the flood story, when he puts the rainbow in the sky, it's his war bow, and he's like a boxer retiring, hanging up the gloves. He says, okay, I've learned my lesson. I won't uh, make war on the human race anymore. I'm hanging my war bow up. So when you see it, you'll remember, okay, I guess we don't have to worry then. Uh, the, uh, the lightning bolts are his arrows. He rides in a war chariot drawn by the the clouds, just like Baal did. In fact, in Daniel, when it says he sees one like the son of man, a son of man coming with the clouds. Yeah, he's riding the cloud chariot, and uh, and and so Yahweh becomes king of gods by using this military prowess and strength to defeat Leviathan and to secure his throne, as some of the Psalms say, like, uh, I think, 74 and uh, 80, oh boy, maybe 78 and 84, I think. He, he uh, secures his, he founds his throne after doing that. <clears throat> so this is just like uh, the victory of Indra over the serpent Vritra, which makes him the new king of gods in the Rig Veda. Uh, it's like Zeus killing the, the Typhon dragon. He becomes the new king. Um, and uh, and their Baal uh, becomes co-regent with El by killing uh, Lotan, the dragon. Uh, Marduk becomes the new king of the gods of Babylon, replacing uh, Enlil, I guess it is, by killing the dragons uh, Apsu and Tiamat and all of that. So, yeah, he's a warrior god. We even have a picture of Marduk with his javelins that he's using to skewer the, the, the dragons. They're lightning bolts. And uh, so, yeah, it's very, very clear that Yahweh is a storm god hence a war god, and in his victory becomes king of gods. So it is a common mytheme, a common understanding of uh, or belief in, in, the, in the theology of the ancient uh, world. And, and there were other gods for him to be king over. Okay. Um, uh, this from, I think it's Ken. No, this is from Ben. Uh, background to my question, I've always been under the impression that the entire New Testament was written in Koine Greek, uh, the common Greek, uh, not classical Greek, and that there are no underlying Hebrew or Aramaic sources that were translated into the Greek. Likewise, I'd read that any passages that quote from the Jewish Bible do so based on the Greek Septuagint. However, a while back, I read something by Bart Ehrman that said there are Greek New Testament passages which appear to have been translated from Aramaic. I believe he said they make more sense when back translated into Aramaic. Um, I'd like to get a handle on whether any of the New Testament is based on translations of Hebrew or Aramaic passages or even lines. Can you suggest any readings or podcasts or videos that will clarify this issue for me? I can't 
I probably can't spend a ton of time on this, so my ideal recommendation would be something that is brief and to the point if such exists. Uh, well, if it does, I don't know about it. Uh, there might well be. I, I do not uh, watch YouTube videos or listen to podcasts. I don't have time. I'm working on my own, right? Uh, uh, so there may well be something like that, but I can recommend a couple of books. Uh, there is... Um, uh, Joachim Jeremias, both with J's at the beginning, uh, his, well, a bunch of his books, but especially the parables of Jesus, he takes the approach that, that uh, some of the stuff, just as Bart says, either manifests a, a, a metric structure once back translated, at least, you know, as an experiment, see if it'll work, back translated into Aramaic. Like, well, let, let's, let's see if it makes sense that way, if it's more poetic, if we translate to the Aramaic equivalent. Darn if it doesn't. What do you know? And he makes a big deal out of that. Also, C.F., I think Bernie, B-U-R-N-E-Y, wrote a book called The Poetry of Our Lord, which he showed this, where he shows the same thing. Now, that doesn't mean there were written sources for this. There might have been, but as Jeremias tells it, uh, it's just that you have uh, the Greek Gospels at some stage probably translating Aramaic traditions of the sayings of Jesus. I think Jeremias would actually jump the gun and almost assume that Jeremias, I'm sorry, that Jesus was the only one who spoke Aramaic. Uh, of course, he doesn't think that, but uh, it certainly does not secure the authenticity of a so-called Jesus saying, if you can show it would work well in Aramaic. Uh, but that's not really your point. It, is it is there any likelihood that we have translated Aramaic? Uh, yeah, though it could just be the the Greek writer doing the translating of oral tradition. It could be, and that's what Jeremias generally thought, and I think Bernie also. Well, then there is C.C. Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y, with a book called... Uh, uh, our well, he has a couple of books. One is Our Translated Gospels, and another is The Four Gospels from Aramaic. And uh, he really gets in oh, into this. Uh, I can think of a couple of other guys, uh, but uh, I really am a fan of Tory. He thinks that uh, the Gospels, all four of them, were written in Aramaic and uh, then translated into Greek. And uh, his uh, a lot of his argument would prove no more than Jeremias's that there is an uh, an Aramaic substratum, uh, but oral or written. But he he points out places where it looks like uh, it, it isn't just sayings and so on. Part of a narrative and so forth would would make more sense. Uh, a good example of this would be the strange business about where Jesus, uh, I think this is in Mark, and his disciples go have dinner with a guy named Simon the leper. I mean, you know, you couldn't really go to the house of a guy called the leper, right? You had to maintain strategic distance from these people. It was Leviticus mandates. Well, this, of course, is one of the versions of the anointing, because while Jesus is at table, a woman takes a jar of uh, uh, spikenard and anoints him with it. Well, Tori points out that it's like a homonym in Aramaic. Uh, yeah, you could translate it leper, but you could also translate it, as, as weird as it sounds, as jar merchant, well, what do you know? No problem having dinner with a jar merchant, and it makes more sense of the woman having a, an alabaster jar of spikenard on the scene, right? So, and there are a number of things like that. A lot of them don't make much difference, uh, but there are several of them where it seems like, yeah, he, he has a good point uh, that uh, it would uh, it would make more sense had uh, the Greek translator um, made a different choice. 
and there's a, a lot to this this argument. Um, see, a more recent scholar, the, the late great uh, uh, Morris Casey, wrote various books on Mark, arguing that there was an Aramaic original and uh, that therefore it goes back to Jesus. I don't follow the logic there, as I say, but uh, he certainly knew his Aramaic, and he uh, he takes pretty much the same case as Yeremias. George Lamsa, back in the 30s, believed that uh, the whole Bible was originally written in Aramaic, which is going some. But uh, I, I, and any of these works uh, are, are fascinating and deal with it. Um, Matthew Black uh, wrote one called An Aramaic Approach to the Gospels and Acts. None of these books is particularly easy reading, and I don't know what uh, that is simpler I could suggest. Maybe somebody else could tell us, but it's a fascinating question. Um, Let's see. Okay. Uh, okay, Nick asks, what, if any, historical evidence do we have of the Council of Jerusalem, presumably held circa 48 CE? Is there a consensus among the scholars as to whether it actually happened, or is it yet another late-date fictional account of the times before the Romans leveled the Second Temple? Also, in case the geek's opinion on the subject is at odds with the consensus, would the geek care to share his opinion as well. Well, the major evidence for this is not acts, which does often fictionalize things, excuse me, but Galatians, because there we have a story of a similar thing uh, where Paul and Barnabas go to uh, get a judgment from the elders in Jerusalem about the validity of his circumcision-free, Torah-free gospel. Uh, So it's the same issue in the same sort of setting. But of course, he doesn't mention the so-called apostolic decree. Uh, And it seems very odd that that in 1 Corinthians and Galatians, where that would have settled some questions, he doesn't mention it. Um, I tend to think that uh, both are fictions. As you know, I well, I, in fact, I think that uh, the first two chapters of uh, Galatians are an addition to the original Marcionite uh, text of Galatians, and that it is actually an overt refutation of Acts' account of Paul in the beginning of his apostolic ministry and the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, So I don't know that we have any real evidence for it, and my opinion is, uh, I get this from J.C. O'Neill, again, in the theology of Acts and its historical setting, that we fi- since we find these issues like eating meat offered to idols for example discussed in Justin Martyr in the book of Revelation and elsewhere as if they've never been settled it, it sort of implies that uh, Acts 15 or the whole book of Acts comes from the 2nd century too and it's trying to settle these debated issues in the same way exactly as uh, the Great Commission at the end of Matthew is trying to settle the issue of whether and on what terms you should have the Gentile mission. Uh, If Jesus had really just settled the question on Easter morning, why would you have these debates later? And the same thing here. Uh, Why would you still be debating it if it was clearly settled by an apostolic decree? I think uh, many or most New Testament critics would uh, go along with some version of this, that they would think that uh, the uh, apostolic decree and the Council of Jerusalem is a kind of a an edifying fiction, but I'm sure it wouldn't be unanimous. Uh, there are various uh, views of this, but I, I would think that uh, it's certainly not just some eccentric weirdo view that... Uh, that uh, O'Neill held, and that uh, I'm the only other one who does. Hmm. Let's see. Most exalted. Now, who's this from? From Jay Newberry in Shunk, Pennsylvania. Most exalted Bible geek. 
I've been scanning a copy of Andres Abacuk's 2014 book, The Synoptic Problem and Statistics. I say scanning because it is loaded with high-level math, which is all Greek to me. But then again, so is the New Testament. Uh, well, uh, you know, I feel exactly the same way. That's why I have no interest in Bayes' theorem, because it involves math, which completely baffles my poor brain. Uh, me and the Neanderthals just don't get it. Okay, anyway, um, Abacuk draws some interesting conclusions, two main ones, in fact. First, while it can be said to be proven, the I'm sorry, while it can't be said to be proven, the statistical evidence favors mark and priority. Uh, second, the ways that both Matthew and Luke use Mark identically are so stylistically significant that either Mark had access to Luke or Luke had access to Matthew. I'm sorry, what is the matter with me? Let me go over that again. The ways that both Matthew and Luke use Mark identically are so significantly, so statistically significant that either Matthew had access to Luke or Luke had access to Matthew. Um, Abacuk seems to take a somewhat dim view of Q, and a shortened summary of his work even appeared in the volume Mark and Priority Without Q, Explorations in the Farrar Hypothesis, edited by Poirier and Peterson. Now, I've listened to the full back catalog of the Bible Geek and have heard you make the point several times that if there was no Q, scholars would still be left to explain how Matthew, for example, came up with his non-Markan material. And from my own meager research, I lean toward the view that Matthew was written before Luke and that Luke probably knew of Matthew. So my question is this, what problems are there with the following scenario? Matthew combines Mark with a Q-like source. Uh, Luke uses Matthew and Mark. Uh, it seems to me it's like having uh, your cake and eating it too. But uh, I don't know, I, I, I tend to think that this, the stuff that is unique to Matthew, though some of it might be oral tradition or something, I think an awful lot of it is simply Matthew's own creation. And even more so with Luke, uh, there's a whole lot of material that just seems distinctively Lucan to me. That, uh, so, so that uh, th those are, do not represent other sources. They're just the creativity of the evangelists Matthew and Luke. I'm more and more open to the idea that um, where Matthew and Luke do alter Mark in pretty much the same way, that that might be best explained by Matthew using Luke or Luke using Matthew, but I still have a big problem in that I, I don't see what Luke would have, what problem he would have had with Matthew's nativity or vice versa. Uh, and uh, I got to do some more thinking about that, but that is such a major thing. Now, if um, if the uh, first chapters of Luke were not original to now, once you bring in Marcion, that complicates things a good bit, because uh, you can say that uh, Luke padded out and censored the Marcionite Gospel, and that um, that. Uh, Matthew only had the Marcionite Gospel, not the Lucan padded canonical edition, and he uh, did other things with it. I, it's it's hard to say. I've uh, I've got a lot more thinking to do on this, but it, it's just one example of what a mess this can be. My theory about the temptation narrative. Uh, we always hear that Q would have been sayings, not really stories, though there could be um, 
pronouncement stories, you know, just a very brief launching pad of narrative to set up the saying. And we do find that in the Gospel of Thomas. Some of them are just aphorisms, some of them are pronouncement stories. But with the temptation story, that's kind of a biggie. Well, I think that uh, Mark had uh, the very short version first, and he didn't even suppose that Jesus was fasting. In fact, I think he says the opposite. The angels served him there like Elijah, which means they served him food in the wilderness, uh, just as Jesus himself will multiply food for people in the wilderness who have none, right? Uh, and uh, Matthew, I think, uh, made it into a 40-day fast and had the three temptations and Jesus' three quotes from Deuteronomy that all have to do with Israel being tested in the desert but failing. And Matthew's point is that Jesus outdid them and passed the tests that uh, for which they failed. And, uh, as, and that he got the idea of Jesus seeing the kingdoms of the world from a mountaintop from the story uh, in Deuteronomy, I think it is, where God takes Moses up to the top of the mountain to show him the kingdoms that his people will shortly be conquering. Uh, and, and since he also used Deuteronomy for the sources of these comebacks by Jesus, I think he simply based that whole thing on the Moses material in Deuteronomy. Luke, uh, the, the, uh, the Ur Lucas, whatever, the, the earlier version of uh, Luke that, uh, what we call Luke, that Marcionites used, that, that did not have the temptation and uh, so uh, Jesus just shows up in Capernaum, uh, having beamed down from heaven. And uh, however, when Polycarp was expanding the Marcionite gospel into canonical Luke, he borrowed that from Matthew. So in that instance, yeah, uh, Luke borrowed from uh, from Matthew. But that's just one piece of it. Uh, who knows? Maybe our problem is issuing complicated theories. However, by nature, the more complex a theory is, it is ipso facto less probable, right? You, you can't show it uh, as easily. Oh, what a mess. Anyway, that's it for the Bible Geek for tonight. Uh, plan on being with you again uh, tomorrow for yet another. Thanks for uh, sticking out a Bible Geek with me uh, again, and I'll see you soon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.